Welcome to the Data Able Podcast, where Dave Mathias and Matt Jesser dive into data. Each week, they cover the culture, knowledge, and practices that successful organizations, leaders, and individuals use to get value out of data. Welcome to another Data Able Podcast episode. Uh, with us today, we have Jordan Morrow. Uh, he is from Click, uh, and he is uh, in charge of their data literacy program. In his role, Jordan is the owner of the data literacy program uh, that touches upon the following topics, big data, analytics, uh, statistics, data visualization, and a lot more. Uh, The program has seen a rapid rise in success uh, and is at the forefront of the industry in thought leadership. Jordan also spearheaded about two years ago the Data Literacy Project, uh, a project that is really designed to bring data literacy to everyone uh, in every role in every organization. Uh, We're super excited to have Jordan with us on the show. Welcome, Jordan. Thank you for having me. All right. Like uh, all of our interviews, we're going to start off with uh, a rapid fire section just to get to know you a little bit better in a fun way. So uh, let's start off with the first question. Jordan, what is your data superpower? Data superpower, I would say it's the ability to think abstractly and get insight from data uh, to think and see the whole picture. So in our next rapid fire question, if you were a data viz, what would you be and why? I have a very nerdy answer to this one. I would be a, a box plot because it looks like a TIE fighter from Star Wars. It's actually one of my favorite data vizs, but that isn't used as much as I think it should be, but I just find that to be funny. Excellent. Well, how about who is your data hero? And you don't have to say me, Jordan. Yeah, come on. How can it not be you guys? Uh, anybody in the world of data literacy is a data hero at this point. No, it, when I think of data heroes, I, I go from a historical perspective, looking backwards. And I think of people like Albert Einstein, um, a man that was able to combine humor to mathematics and data, and he had such a practical approach to things. And then someone like Turing, who literally won a world war or helped to win a world war, who created the, the computer, who had this ability to take mathematics, data, and analytics, and bring it to the forefront in, in what was seen at the time as a ludicrous way, but turned out to be genius. Yeah, we both uh, seem like underachievers now that you, you put those out there, So, uh, but great choices. <laughs> so what is your favorite book? And it doesn't have to be a data book. In fact, could, could definitely not be a data book. But what is your favorite book? Oh, man, there's, I am constantly reading. One that I'm in love with right now is a, a book by David Goggins. And if, if no one's read it, it's called Can't Hurt Me. In fact, I just recommended it. I do book recommendations on LinkedIn and I just recommended it for people. It's David Goggins is, how would I describe him? I'm a, I'm a trail runner, an ultra marathon runner. And David Goggins in that world, he was a Navy SEAL. He was an armor ranger, went through Delta, force camp. I mean, just an amazing man. If you could get past the language, because I'm totally fine with it, but some people get offended by foul language. Uh, He has a very foul mouth. And um, just not necessarily from bad ways. It's just from his upbringing and and he was beat as a child, but that would be, could go down as my favorite book of all time. Wow. For a reader like yourself, that's, uh, that's really saying something. Yeah, so it's, but if anyone ever needs book recommendations, I probably have way too many. And I find myself and my wife probably makes fun of me for it, but I'm usually reading anywhere from two to five books at a time. 
which not necessarily a good thing, but you know, I get excited to pick up a new one all the time. So I'm having to learn to slow that down a little bit. That's awesome. So kind of in the same vein, Jordan, uh, who is your all-time favorite storyteller or author and why? So I would actually, I'm not, I don't know if it's all time. I haven't really ever thought of that, but two people that come to my mind um, are Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner, the Freakonomics authors. I love their books and the podcast, et cetera. But the reason why I, I would choose them as some of my favorite storytellers and authors is they were really at the forefront of behavioral economics, behavioral statistics, and using funny stories and storytelling to show the power of what data can do. And so being a, a big nerd myself in this arena, having authors like that that are able to do that, they definitely shoot high on my list. Absolutely. I think you could almost consider them pioneers in blending data, a data-driven approach with uh, storytelling and human emotion uh, that brings that data to life. So, Jordan, I think I might know the answer to this one, but uh, in kind of today's industry, what is the data trait or skill that you feel is being overlooked or undervalued? Ooh, now now I'm I'm going to turn it back to you because you said you think you know the answer. What what do you think I'm going to say? Well, uh, you are the global head of data literacy at Click, so uh, so I might I might be prodding you here, but uh, tell us a little bit more about what you think. Yeah, no, I, uh, data literacy. I'm I'm going to get to a specific skill within data literacy that's out there. Um, because a lot of, a lot of things that we're seeing are, are passed all over the industry, all over. In fact, I had someone shoot me, um, someone had written a blog. It was, it's one of the competitors to click and, and the blog was all about how the answer isn't data literacy, it's data storytelling and that people won't need data literacy. They just need to use stories to tell or, or base their arguments on within data. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. We absolutely need storytelling, but if you're not good with data or comfortable with data, you'll never get the insights from the data. You'll never find how to use the data correctly. You won't know if the data is clean. So storytelling absolutely is critical, but it is a piece of the pie with data literacy. But that one's not being undervalued. There are so many things that are just being pushed out there. The one that I think in the world of data analytics, data science, data literacy, all of it that is super undervalued because we just keep getting hit by advertisements for software, advertisements for storytelling. I mean, I published something on this recently, advertisements for this or that, that we miss the critical skill of being able to critically think on data. And I absolutely think that's undervalued. We, we have people coming at us all the time saying, oh, the, the AI will tell that to you. The machine will tell you that to you. The data shows that to you. That's not true. Data, you need the human element, you need that human touch, and that is critical thinking, that ability to actually think on data, get past fake news, get bad, past all these other things to arrive at pure insight to make a decision. That to me is the most undervalued thing in the industry today because we are so reliant on technology, that human element is undervalued. Yeah, that is a fantastic answer. And that critical data thinking, I just emphasize so much uh, with people. And they hear that and they're like, 
they don't know how to respond at first. And then they start processing a little bit and then they start nodding. And so to totally appreciate what you're saying there. So let's move on to data blogs and podcasts. Obviously, you know, we're, we think we're a great podcast, but there's a lot of data blogs and podcasts around there. Which ones, uh, what would be the number one place that you would recommend people to go to for a data blog or data podcast other than us. Yeah, I was about to say, besides this one, um, one of the ones that really got me thinking about data literacy more and topics on understanding it is one by a guy named Kyle Pollock called Data Skeptic. And he, he does a great job. He's he, The way that he formatted his podcast, and uh, God, I mean, it's been around, I want to say I started listening to it about four or five years ago. And the way that he formatted it, it he would do really short podcasts, you know, mini ones that are about 10 to 15 minutes long, where he'd go over some part of data science or statistics, et cetera. And then he'd have longer ones bringing in real world experience. But if people are ever looking for quick crash courses over certain topics in data science or data and analytics, I recommend the the Data Skeptic podcast by Kyle Pollack. Moving on to the next thing, what non-data blog or podcast would you recommend? I'm a, I'm a big uh, fitness guy. So there's a couple out there. I mean, but it, it, one of them is is he brings fitness people on and non-fitness people on. It's Joe Rogan, um, and, and he'll have great guests like Neil deGrasse Tyson was on there, David Goggins, the author of the book that I wrote earlier. Um, again, you have to get past you know the potty mouth that he might have, but just some of the guests that, that he brings on just have this wealth of knowledge of different industries, different topics, and it makes it enjoyable. I also really like Malcolm Gladwell's podcasts. Um, revisionist history and things like that. So there's there's really fun ones out there. And being a runner, you could just pop a podcast in while you're running and let your mind wander away. Jordan, I'm sensing a theme with the potty language in uh, in your recommendations. <laughs> See, I'm one of those that you know swearing and stuff doesn't really bother me, but I know it does bother some people. So I like to give that little precursor for some people. Like for David Goggins, he'll flat out tell you if you listen to his book or his uh, he did a podcast with Joe Rogan, and, and I mean, this is a man that was beaten as a child, um, racist undertones all throughout his life, et cetera. And so for him, I think it was a way to toughen himself up, right, to just be who 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 he is. But yes, for me, I, uh, swearing and stuff doesn't necessarily bother me a whole lot, but I know it does some people, so I want to give those warnings in there. <laughs> Sure. So we put uh, we put links to all of your recommendations in our podcast notes uh, on our website. So we'll make sure to call uh, those uh, recommendations out as explicit, just in case anybody is offended. Yeah. Well, and thankfully, Malcolm Malcolm Gladwell is not that way. So if if they don't want to listen to that, the revisionist history ones are are brilliant. Malcolm does a great job on those. Fantastic. Let's shift gears a little bit. You know, we had some fun getting to know you um, a little more casually, but let's do a little bit more of a formal introduction. So Jordan, uh, I gave you a very brief bio uh, at the start, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So a little about me from a personal perspective. I, I married man with, I, I've got a big family. I've got five kids. Um, they're all young right now, but five kids and a dog. So I, I don't know what that makes me the the old school guy or whatever, but I love having a big family. Love my kiddos, they're great. Uh, I'm a passionate uh, reader, love to read books, constantly doing that. And, and one of my biggest and favorite things in the world is is running and especially running in the mountains. So I live in the mountains of Utah. I'm a trail runner, an ultra marathon runner. And uh, of course, I also love traveling the world. And so those are some just 
personal things about me that maybe tell a little more about my nerdiness and things like that. So Jordan, um, I have to ask, what is the difference between a marathon and an ultra marathon? Yeah, so marathon, 26.2 miles, uh, pretty standard. Ultra marathon is essentially uh, any race above that in distance. And, and kind of the entry level ultra marathon is a 50K, which is right around 31.1 miles. And they go all the way up to 100 milers, 200 milers, uh, 24 hour events where you see how, how far you can run in 24 hours. And a lot of them are on the trail. So it, it really ties directly into trail running and ultra marathoning go hand in hand. In fact, talking about a podcast I would recommend that's non-data, there's Trail Runner Nation. That's another one. If you're ever wanting to get really into trail running and into fitness in that regard, Trail Runner Nation is a fun one that does that. So Jordan, you want to do um, a little bit of a background on your professional life. Uh, what's, uh, what's your current role at Click? Yeah, so my current role is, is Global Head of Data Literacy for Click. I've been in this role for a while. Uh, in fact, I started on this journey of data literacy before it really had become a thing where my boss and I just had this vision and thought that we need to help people consume data effectively uh, so they can be good at telling stories, so that they can communicate information, and so they can get um, beyond just observations and truly find insight. And so actually, it's a funny story with my background. I, I went to school for a while uh, to be a math teacher. I love math. And my passion really is about mathematics. I love mathematics and data and analytics and the, the power that's there. And I switched my, my undergraduate degree away from mathematics. And I don't know how I landed it, but in fact, my wife, as I was getting interviewed for my first job out of university, she didn't have any clue how I was going to get it. It was in accounting. Um, I was being recruited by American Express uh, to go into their accounting group. And I had no background in accounting. I never worked for the big four, but for some reason they hired me. But as soon as I could, I got back into the world of data um, and analytics. And uh, that's really where my passion is. And then two and a half to three years ago, um, my boss and I just had this vision. He opened up a job at Click to do it. I saw it, took it, and we've been running with it ever since. Well, that's great. I mean, that's uh, quite a story, and and it's amazing how we get where we get on that path. But it, it's very clear to see that your passion is here, and and you know what you're doing with the community is phenomenal. I mean, moving into that a little bit more, we're going to talk a little bit about data culture and data literacy, and. Tell us a little bit more about what data literacy means to you and how you would define it. You bet. So the, the actual definition that's out there uh, that we utilize comes from Raul and Catherine from MIT and Emerson University. And this is the formal definition. It's the ability to read, work with, analyze, and argue with data. So four key characteristics that actually really lie on a spectrum of skills, right? It's not just one skill to read, one skill to analyze, et cetera. The way I, I say it when I just want to chat about it casually, it's effectively the ability to just consume data effectively, right? I mean, we're, we're inundated with data. Every organization in the world pretty much nowadays and every industry has all this data. And data literacy is just an ability to effectively consume it. And by consume it, that also means being able to make decisions on it. It means to be able to communicate it effectively and do things like that. So it's it's the overarching ability to utilize data. Building on that a little, um, we, we hear these terms data-informed or data-driven organizations. What does a data-informed organization look like to you? So when we, when we take a thought process and we take a look at 
data informed or data driven, I want to make kind of a, a distinction between the two of those. So data driven can mean that the human element is eliminated. And I think that that is a cautionary thing to do. The moment that the human element is eliminated, you never know what the data is truly going to be saying. And so if you rely just on algorithms, et cetera, it doesn't bring everything together. And I think that's one of the dangers that all this data is presenting in the world right now is the fact that some organizations are moving away from having the human element in there or they think that's okay. And we can't do that. And that's where data informed comes into play. Data informed is where an organization combines the human element to the data and technology element to make smart, informed decisions. And I heard a great quote on that. It's not just being informed, but it's informing others. And this uh, it's communicating with others what you're doing. And so it's data-driven, although is one step in the process, you do want to have data driving things, but it shouldn't be driving everything. You need the human element combined with it. And that's where data informed comes into play. So Jordan, you know, you work with a lot of organizations today. You talk to a lot of uh, C-suite leaders to kind of continue on that data informed path. Have you seen in your experience, an organization that is truly data informed today? And if so, what does that look like? Yeah, I, I one of my favorite examples along this line actually comes from an organization in an industry that people might not think of uh, as being data informed or being really smart with data. And that is the Avon Somerset Police Force in the UK. And they're an example that I bring up quite often because what they have done is they quite literally have utilized data to make policing smarter and better. And I think one of the reasons that it stuck so well with Avon and Somerset was the fact that their leader got behind it. And so I think some organizations have little pockets of employees that are trying to be more data informed and and smarter with data. But what really makes it stand out is when a leader buys in and then pushes it out to the organization. And so the Avon Somerset police force has done just that. They have Uh, the leadership involved. They push it out so that pretty much everyone from the police that are out on the street to those in the offices to et cetera, have this ability to truly use data to make informed decisions and intelligent decisions. And when you're thinking of a police force, that can literally mean life or death. And so uh, I think that's a prime example of an area or an industry that historically might not be seen as quote unquote data, or data-informed, driven, et cetera, utilizing it in an effective manner. I guess my follow-up question to that is, what about uh, what a listener uh, that's listening to our podcast today who is passionate about helping drive a data-informed organization, uh, but maybe he or she doesn't have perfect support from their leadership? You mentioned kind of these pockets of teams that are trying to do something. What would be your recommendation to someone like that who is trying to become, trying to help the organization become more data informed? I think when, when you don't have buy-in from leadership or from those above you, what really resonates to them is outcomes. And they want to see that something has happened. They want to see that something occurred. And so for me, when, I'm, when I think about those little pockets or you think about these people that might not have a lot of support, but they're trying to take this on, my recommendation is go full force, put forth your effort into be data-driven, data-informed, make decisions, 
create use cases and proof of concept. And when you can prove out, look, this is what we are doing from a data literacy perspective, from a data informed perspective, and it's working very well, you have proof points to show them. And I think that's really what helps resonate with leadership um, because they want to see what do I get out of this? When, when you go to executives, when I work with organizations, of course, that's what they want to hear. What am I going to get out of this? And so if you're a small little pocket or a small little team trying to do this, find those areas where you can prove out that this is working and then let the grassroots movement continue on from there. And then over time, of course, hopefully what you get is, is the leadership seeing it, seeing the success, seeing the proof, and then putting it in place themselves. How is that breakdown between different areas? Yeah, I think I kind of look at it from two perspectives. I think of it first, when we think of uh, culture within the world of data, I think that a lot of times organizations or individuals in organizations might feel to your point, they're going to overtake my job or why are they doing this? What is that? That is a fear-based approach to how they look at data versus embracing culture. Now, you're not going to change culture, right? I mean, if you go in and I do it all the time, I jokingly ask the question when I'm meeting at a conference or with an organization or whatever it is, how easy is it to change culture? And of course you get a big laugh because it's not easy. So what you want to do as an organization that from a success standpoint, and this might be one of the biggest keys to having any data strategy, whether data science, data literacy, whatever it is, in order to make it work, the culture has to understand the adoption of data in day-to-day -day work. They have to understand that the organization wants to utilize data for success. And if they can do that, that is really what is going to make that happen. If you can start to get the culture of data to flow. And one way to do that, this is the second point I wanted to make with this. When organizations really want to see success with stuff, you can't just throw data like spaghetti against a wall and see what sticks. Think about outcomes that you're trying to achieve and then go backwards utilizing data to make things happen. An outcome-based approach uh, allows a culture to succeed. When you have outcomes in mind or strategies and visions that you want to do from an analytical approach, having that outcome-based mindset can be key. Now, that being said, don't have an outcome-based mindset where you try to use data to support an already preconceived notion. That's that's cognitive bias or confirmation bias, excuse me, where you're, you are finding data to support your conclusion. No, what I mean by an outcome-based approach is something to the effect, we want to see a better return on sales. Let's dig into the data to do it. We want better return on equity. We want more employee engagement. Those are outcomes that you want from a data literate workforce. But again, without the right culture, that's not going to happen. People are just going to keep doing what they do versus improving upon what they're trying to do. That is so true. And that uh, confirmation bias is such a uh, challenge that organizations fall into and, and the trap that, you know, we all want to, you know, be proven right. We, we have our gut feeling and let all oh, the data will just like reaffirm, of course, uh, you know, people can make data look how they want to make it look and you'll feel better from it, but that's not going to help anyone. One of the things you had mentioned a little while ago uh, was about that uh, getting that leadership and that top down, that that executive buy in, and that just really helps uh, drive things forward. But one of the things is if you can have that grassroots effort 
starting at the same time that you have that top down and they sort of meet in the middle and they really sort of just overtake the organization. You know, like you were saying, culture is hard to change, but you know, if you have both of those going forward, uh, then you can help try to mold culture, at least uh, nudge it a little bit. Have you seen organizations do it and how would they, how, how do they best coordinate those efforts from that top down and bottom up happening at the same time? Yeah, I think it's, I think you're right. I, that, when you mold it correctly, right? We're not looking to change. And I think this is one of the things that helps employees to do it. It's it's the right communication plan, right? It is the right mindset. You can't communicate that we are changing culture. People won't buy in. But if you say we are starting to weave in the world of DNA into our existing culture, that right there can sell it to people because they realize they're not trying to shift things. They're trying to empower me. So to me, the way that it really gets behind it, in fact, when I work with organizations to help them adopt data literacy initiatives, I don't even talk about what we're going to be doing from a training perspective until we have locked down a communication plan, right? How are we going to communicate this? And the key to me is getting to the why. Why is the organization embracing this? And if you get to the why and you can message the why effectively, then the organization can get behind it and say, perfect, this is the why behind it. Then you get to the how and the what. But I think historically, you know, how many people like to get an email in their inbox that says you have mandatory training and they have no idea why it's there? That's not going to work. So it's setting that foundational level of understanding with people. This is why our organization is taking on data. And I can only imagine like Avon Somerset Police Force. I can imagine some of those officers weren't really behind it that well when all of a sudden you're a police officer, you've been doing it a certain way for years, and your leader says, by the way, you're all going to become data nerds. How does that sound, right? I think that there's more to it than that. There's leadership buy-in, there's foundational positioning that has to occur. And then when that is there, you're exactly right. You can mold the culture, you can evolve it, and you can weave the DNA of data throughout it. That to me is that setup for success. Where it fails is when people invest first in technology versus the human element, when they just jump at it thinking it's an easy button versus a sound understanding. Those are the things that I think get in the way of a truly successful data-driven initiative at an organization. Yeah, I like to call it helping the organization think data first, right? It's when a business person is presented with a problem uh, or a challenge, which is inevitable, their first reaction is, hey, let's bring data to the table to help us solve this. That to me is what data literacy success looks like when someone's first reaction is to go to the data. Uh, Would you agree with that? A hundred percent, a hundred percent, because what you've done is you have not changed the culture right? What you have done is you've changed a fixed mindset or you've changed the mindset away from, oh, this is what we did in the past to what does the data show me? And then when you're able to dig in, this is why, you know, I get concerned on that blog post that was posted that says data storytelling is the answer, not data literacy. All you need is to back up your arguments with a story and with data. Well, people can't use data to do that. So for, unless they're data literate, right? And that's why I think it's, it's misleading or, or not necessarily misleading, but it's, it's off a little bit in the mindset that you need to be able to get insights and information from data. The data is not just going to come to you and say, this is the story I want you to tell. You can have an argument and think you're backing it up with data, but if you don't have the ability to understand the data, which is what data literacy is, 
it's not going to happen. And so you're changing that mindset away from this is how I always used to do it to a new mindset of what does the data show me? What insight can I gather to either support? And this is the key though. I mean, I think everybody is okay when data supports their argument is having the mindset that I may be 100% wrong and I have to be okay with that if the data shows me otherwise. And I think that is the other key to your point. Not only are we bringing data forward in our mindset for decision-making, we're also okay with being 100% wrong and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what data should do for us is challenge us. But I think that's the harder part I think people are okay with using data. It's harder for them to say, oh, it's okay for me to be wrong. So Jordan, there is a very strong data science, data analytics, big data movement that's been sweeping organizations for the last five to eight years. I think data literacy could be perceived by that community as almost a challenger to their position, right? We're arming non-technical people with some basic tools that data scientists are are trying to solve. Have you run across any anyone who feels maybe slightly threatened by uh, this movement and and if so, uh, how do we how do we message this data literacy movement in a way that is a win-win for everyone? Yeah, I, I haven't come across anybody that thinks it's it's conflicting yet. I'm sure they're out there. You're absolutely right. To me, the messaging needs to be the complement that they are to each other. Data literacy is not trying to take away AI, machine learning, data science, etc. Those things are necessary at organizations. But my, my famous saying, what I always say is not everyone needs to be a data scientist. Everyone needs to be data literate. And so when you think of the masses, yes, we still need data scientists. We still need machine learning. We need AI. We need big data. But imagine being a data scientist or statistician who tries to summarize a big, let's say, Markov chain analysis that you did. It's got great results. You're sharing it with someone. Imagine if that individual is not data literate. They're going to stare at you like deer in the headlights. They're not going to get it. What data literacy does is it's the complement that they are to each other, right? The masses don't need to be data scientists but they need to be able to communicate with the data scientist. It's the whole culture that, that gets into play here. It's the working together that works for this. And that's why I don't, I don't think there's, hopefully they don't feel threatened, but if they do, it's, it's lack of understanding. We just need people to understand that data literacy is not here to take over this. In fact, when I go to conferences or I work with organizations, I tell them you still need data scientists but don't focus all your energy on creating everybody to be a data scientist. For one, it's not going to happen. Most people don't want to go back to school and be statisticians. But two, you need to empower everybody to be comfortable with data so that those things the data scientists are doing do not fall on deaf ears. And so that to me is the messaging. It's, it's helping to understand truly what each of these things are and how that they're not here to take over each other but they're here to complement each other to, I mean, you could call it a big team sport at this point, right? Or unity where everything is working. And I, I don't know if I like team sport in that regard. I think it's the unification, right? It's the unity between all of the sciences that deal with data, which among those is data literacy. Yeah, that's actually a good question here, though. I mean, I think the, the reference to a team sport. So one of the things 
seen over the years in software, right? Software has built teams. You'll have your to your dev. You'll have your usability. Your you know your UX, maybe UX researcher, UX design. You have your product owner. You have your Scrum master, and they become a team that's working together to execute on defined problems. Oftentimes, at least in my experience, I've come more across the realm of, you know, you have your data science team sort of isolated off, your analyst teams isolated off. And yes, so they'll work with the business, but they're sort of like order taking and they seem more distant and less of an integrated team. When you're thinking about the approach, do you think that data and, you know, people working with data could maybe learn a little bit from those software teams? Obviously, I'm sort of asking a loaded question from my view, but, you know, it's one of those things that I've just wondered why that hasn't uh, better transitioned those learnings from software to analytics. I I think you're spot on. I, I do think that we can learn from areas of businesses and areas of that that really unify this. It was Marie Clark who, who kind of coined the term to me about data science is the new team sport or a new team sport. I think that it's happening just slowly. So I think thankfully we're starting to see it happen where um, data scientists are now becoming more heavily involved with the business side of things. And they have to be. This is actually where data storytelling kind of bridges the gap between the business and the data science area. Now, the one thing that kind of helps this all come into a full picture is even if you're a data scientist, there are skills within data literacy you need to learn, i.e. data storytelling and communicating with data. Because the skills within data literacy are a spectrum, right? You're going to have people who are beginners all the way up to people who are super advanced. But there's always areas of opportunity to learn and to make this more team involved, like you said, to make it flow better so that people are not isolated. You need the data scientists working with the business more. You need the business working with the the data scientists more. But if people are not data literate who need to work with data scientists, and if data scientists don't have the ability to work with leadership well, that's the isolation that occurs because it's never been the focus. I think we're starting to see that focus come into light more and more. I think you're spot on that it needs to work that way. There needs to not be isolation anymore. People need to interact together. And that is one of the things that bridges this gap. It's data literacy. It's the ability to communicate, to speak the language of data, to interpret, to work with the data. Again, not everyone needs to be that data scientist, do it advanced. But the data scientist on the flip side also needs to be able to understand the business needs, the KPIs, et cetera, versus just going off in a corner and running a statistical model. So you're, you're spot on. I think we're seeing it though. I think that it's finally happened. I think for a long time it was isolated probably because I think one, people thought it was the, the easy button, right? We hire some data scientists. There's our easy button. We don't need to deal with them. I think they're finding out that's not how it works and which is good. They need, they need that dose of reality that that's not how things are going to work. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that uh, you're right. I, I do see some change. I, I, I'm impatient, Jordan. I just want to see it happen now, <laughs> you know, but uh, you're, you're right. Uh, so here's one thing and sort of this sort of ties on to a little bit more is you're referencing not everyone needs to be a data scientist and but at the same time, you know, data literacy isn't, okay, a binary thing, you're data literate or you're not. There is that uh, sort of pendulum of, of how data literate you are. And when you're talking uh, with different departments and different different companies and what their business model is, and they, they ask, okay, so 
you know, I have this group and that group and that group. How do I understand how data literate my people should be and function, you know, and there's going to obviously be different uh, sort of shades of gray uh, from that super data literate person to not data literate at all. How, how do you go about that, having that conversation and and then going about and actually measuring where thing, where people are and then where they're going to be? Yeah, it's a great question. I think this is the overarching need for full-scale adoptive frameworks for data literacy initiatives. Because you're right, data literacy, unlike data science, data science is, unfortunately, the term data scientist has kind of been whitewashed or graywashed or whatever you want to call it in the industry where it's it's not truly what it is anymore. Um, a data scientist is someone who uses the scientific method on data. But now it's got so many different definitions. But what I mean by binary there is you, some people think you are either a data scientist or you're not. In data literacy, it is such a broad spectrum of skills. It's from someone who is really good at building a dashboard and visualization to someone who stinks at doing that but is really good at communicating stories to someone who stinks at that. You know, it's, you're exactly right. It's a spectrum. And what needs to happen is we need to assess our skills, right? We need to be able to assess and understand not everybody is going to take the exact same training. Not everyone needs to take the exact same training. You utilize the abilities that you have on that spectrum and advance yourself. Certain things that can be done, right? I know that your organization does it, helping organizations see what needs they have, putting in them in place. I've done it. I built an adoptive framework that, that takes you from the beginnings all the way through to um, measurement and stuff on an iterative cycle. I, I think there are tools and assessments that are available for organizations and workforces to assess where they are. The key is, though, get people who know what they're talking about on board with you, whether it's you two with your organization, whether it's me, getting someone to help them understand the picture. Because I think, again, organizations are trying to find easy buttons, and that's not how data literacy works. It takes time. It's an investment. And through that investment, to your point, you then get to see changes. You get to see outcomes. This is where I come back to outcomes a lot. Make your data literacy initiative outcome-based. What do you want to see? Or project-based. What projects can we work on that would include data literacy? And you'll see results. Then you get more people on board, and then it becomes a full-scale initiative. But I do think that you're saying it very well in that it's not one-size-fits-all. It's not binary. It's a spectrum. And we just need to take a step back and understand the full picture before we just sit there and say one thing is going to solve everything. So Jordan, with our remaining few minutes here, um, I'd love for you to give us a little bit more information about your data literacy project. Uh, this is an offshoot of Click, uh, but is specifically designed to be separate from Click. And your tagline is that the Data Literacy Project is a global community dedicated to building a data literate culture for all. Tell us a little bit about uh, the Data Literacy Project and how that got started. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm going to give a little correction to the introduction earlier. It, it was actually not a two-year journey. It's only been a few months, actually. It officially launched in October. Now, we've been on the journey of building it for a while. Um, but when it was launched to the world, it was in October. And our mindset was this. One, one thing people they kind of either don't believe me or get a kick on is when I talk about my data literacy things at Click, they don't really necessarily believe me that my stuff is free. Well, it is. Um, a lot of my materials and everything, anybody can download and utilize. We took that a step further and we decided we wanted to create 
a truly independent community of like-minded individuals to one, drive messaging around data literacy, to get intelligent people involved with it. Like I've, I've talked with you guys on how I want you involved with the data literacy project. We had certain founding members that kind of helped establish it in the beginning. Members are Click. It was commissioned by Click, but again, I think people need to realize it truly is independent. Um, there's Click involved, there's Accenture, there's Cognizant, there's Experian. And the purpose of this community or the data literacy project is to bring resources together um, to let organizations bring stories, what works, what doesn't work, to build a big community. Uh, I have so much vision for this. It look, I'm on the board for it, and it looks like I'm going to chair that board. I've got so many big ideas that I want running with this, getting organizations such as yourself, other great people out there like Chantilly and, and Ben Jones and all these other people that I know who have voices in this world of data literacy, getting their voices heard, getting their resources out there, allowing people to see what your company does, what others are doing, what is working, what is not working, having a community, a forum, etc., bringing all of this to the world so that organizations that join and start on this journey know that they're not there alone, that they have people to back them up, that there are resources available. The Data Literacy Project was a, a massive undertaking. One of the best things about it, I'm going to kind of side note here for a second, was through the Data Literacy Project, we actually commissioned a large statistical analysis of data literacy. And the reason for that was, as you can imagine, I've been, I've been preaching data literacy for such a long time on this journey People sit there and say, okay, we believe you, Jordan. We want to be data literate. What do you think the next question is? It's how do we do this? And then it becomes, what are we going to get out of it? Is there value from data literacy? So we commissioned a, a PhD statistician from, or just a genius basically is how I'll refer to him, from Wharton School of Business and another third party to help with data uh, gathering, collecting, et cetera to understand what value data literacy has. And through that statistical analysis, we found that organizations that are top tier data literate have more enterprise value. That equated, if you look at the organizations we looked at, it was 600 plus worldwide public companies, large companies. Um, it equated to hundreds of millions of dollars in value. So if you were top tier data literate, you were worth more by hundreds of millions of dollars. Not only that, you were quicker to market, you had better return on equity, return on sales, all these key things that proved out to us that data literacy mattered. That came through the data literacy project. So not only are we trying to create this community, this independent community, not necessarily run or attached by one organization, but by a handful, combine that with the, the proof point um, from a statistical perspective that data literacy matters, that's the messaging we're trying to get out with the data literacy project. Well, on that note, knowing that it's almost the end of, uh, you know, our time with you, I'd like to, you know, understand how can people engage with you? I know you're all over the place. You're really active on LinkedIn, but where, where can people reach out, learn more about you and really, uh, you know, engage with you, maybe even personally, if there's an opportunity? Absolutely. I am, I am an open book is kind of what I always tell people. I'm, you're right. LinkedIn is probably the best place. I try and talk about data literacy and not only talk about it, but like I've invited YouTube before quite often with chats that I try and do, bringing up subjects and trends I'm seeing in the industry. So I would say first LinkedIn, just Jordan, uh, J-O-R-D-A-N, Morrow, M-O-R-R-O-W. Find me on there. Um, I'm the biggest nerd that you'll find on there, which is great, but I'm all about data literacy. Um, I'm on 
uh, Twitter at analytics time. I'm pretty active there, not as much as LinkedIn. I'm actively writing a blog for Click all about data literacy. You can find me there. You can find me through the data literacy project as I, I'm on the board and lead through there. And then finally, I do. I, I travel the world um, quite regularly. Uh, just speaking about this, whether I'm, I'm speaking at a conference, I go and meet with companies, individuals, whatever the case may be, I am very available to anyone. So connect with me on LinkedIn and those other areas and then find out if I'm going to be in your area and I'm more than happy to, to go grab a drink or coffee or grab lunch or whatever the case may be just to chat uh, about this wonderful topic. Well, it's awesome to have you on here. I know Matt and I really appreciate it. So thanks for the time today. I know we'll be uh, engaging with you soon and uh, really appreciate all the insights. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. And if you ever need this nerd to come back on the show, I'd be happy to. Excellent. The Data Able Podcast is produced by Dave Mathias and Matt Jesser and made possible by Beyond the Data. At Beyond the Data, we are on a mission to help high-performing individuals successfully become champions for a more data-driven approach in their organizations. We believe that data science is only part of the equation. Getting value out of data requires building a culture that starts with you, is supported by executives, and trickles down to every facet of your organization. You can learn more about Beyond the Data and our approach at GoBeyondTheData.com.